0: My best friend, who's a cognitive neuroscientist, is also doing her PhD because even if you want to do that in industry, you need years and years of experience with a neuroscientific method. So for some fields, this is very, very specific. If someone's listening at night right now and they're like, I, I don't know what this looks like for my field. Look at people who are in your field, say about five years ahead of you. Have these conversations with these people and ask, do you think I need a PhD? What was your motivation for doing one? and try to find someone in that field who hasn't done a PhD, because you always need the the counterfactual, right? And see like, hey, I see you are one of the people who don't have a PhD in this field. How did that work out for you?
1: Welcome to this new episode of Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD. This week, I have the great pleasure of having with me Merle van den Acker and uh, to talk with her about misconceptions around the PhD. But we're also going to talk about other uh, things and different things that she has written about in her book Um, but we'll i'll give some more details later on about that merle uh, finished a phd in behavioral science and left academia to become an applied behavioral scientist in the financial services of all things i need you to tell me that story she has blogged and written a book about her experiences inside and outside of academia and about how to make the most of both worlds. Welcome to Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD, Mela.
0: Thank you for having me, Papa PhD. <laughs> Such a cute name. I love it so much.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you like it. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, it was uh, one of these moments of inspiration, but also necessity. I wanted a name that worked in French in it's just four years ago, eh? in French and in English. And I was a recently a dad uh and uh being a dad was part of my post phd experience uh but but what happened is that people were starting to ask me or were continually uh, asking me does it have to do about being a parent with being a parent uh during you know in academia or during the phd and so this is why i kind of developed it recently to be on the thesis with papa phd
0: that's fair. That's fair. I mean, you I mean through this through this podcast and how you help people and how you educate people about the PhD process. Essentially, you are a, a father figure oh. in the mentoring kind of sense, right? <laughs> I so like to, I think it works it out. It does. <laughs> I like
1: to think so too. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Mehla. Uh but now let's focus on you. So I, you know, gave this really quick um introduction of you, um behavioral neuroscience and then the and then finance how how does that <laughs> yeah. work? I'd I'd really like it maybe to start by by uh, you know drawing the curtain on how do you go from one to the other?
0: Sure. So realistically, behavioral science or behavioral economics, if you want to get even more nitty gritty, is a is just a mix of psychology and economics. So to go from that into the financial services is really not that far fetched as most people think. I uh I did my undergrad in liberal arts, uh absolutely loved it, so I did psychology, I did economics, I did game theory, I did statistics, loved all of it, did it back home in my own country, so in the Netherlands. And then one of the the teachers I had, who was an, an absolute hero, uh who was a philosopher of, of all uh, of all kinds of people he could have been, all kinds of professions he could have been, um he sat down with me uh, as, as I asked to sit down with him and it was just like, listen, I love everything I'm doing here, but I've got no idea where this is going. So by this stage, I am nineteen, trying to figure out my life. Difficult stage for everyone—the late teens, uh, trying to move into your twenties, feeling very mature, having none of the life skills to back it up, really. And just sat down with him and I asked, "So where, where is this going? Like, can you can you help me out? Like, you must have like mentored and supervised so many students. Help me out here." And he was like, well, if you're doing economics and psychology and you want to continue doing that, you could essentially just become a behavioral economist. That is kind of what you're doing anyway. So I was like, okay, new term. I can look that up. I can make that work. <laughs> at least I know what to look for now. And then uh, he told me from the beginning, well, if that, if that's something you're interested in, be prepared that you will be moving to the UK. And I'm like, that's, uh, that's news. <laughs> but at the time, so this was 2015-ish, the best behavioral science and behavioral economics programs were in the UK. In the rest of the world, it hadn't really developed as much. The field is relatively young, at least as a, as a taught and as a formalized field. It's very, very young. So uh, I, I did the research as you said. Went to Warwick University, which is in the UK. Did a degree in behavioral and economic science. Absolutely loved it. And then I just kind of got caught up in the... And we've had this chat already, but I got caught up very much in the Warwick, especially the Warwick Business School kind of approach to telling your students where to go. So you do the undergrad, you do the master's. And then as soon as you start them, so as soon as you start your last year of your undergrad or like, you know, the only year of your master's, which is, you know, you start end of September, early October, by end of October, early November, you will be going to careers fairs, you will be doing your training and assessment centers. Um, This is very, very full on. And the corporate consulting industry in the UK, uh, especially in that area, is huge. So think PwC, although they're currently in a bit of hot water. Think of McKinsey, although I think they're always in hot water. Think of Bain, BCG. That uh, that whole Accenture, also huge in the UK. So think of these players, and they recruit every month of every year on every campus. Like These people do not take breaks. So... Me coming into touch with them, um uh, oh EY partners is also huge here in Cap Gemini as well. Um they they're just they you meet them consistently, you cannot escape them. That's not a not necessarily a bad thing, it's just an interesting recruiting strategy. So, you know, ye I, I came into touch with them as well. I didn't know at the time really what I was doing, loved behavioral economics, hadn't really thought beyond that, thought I'd stay in the UK for a year did, as everyone else, the training assessment centers, the interviews, the whole rigmarole, and I hated it. That process is so not psychologically or behaviorally informed that I was just like, well, if this is how we're starting, I don't really want to know where we're ending. So you have these interviews then you sit face to face with people where the older partners They were fine, which is actually highly ironic because the the older people, like say at the the time I was 20ish and I sat down with, let's say people who were like 35 to 40, they clearly already made good headway through the company. Um, They were very happy with their, they, they presented as if they were very happy with their position, with the company, with their career trajectory, whatever. But then I met the youngsters and these people were awful. Um, that's not a personal attack. It's just my experience with them, and it, did, it didn't matter whether they were Bain, McKinsey, EY. It was like thirteen to a dozen. They're all the same kind of people, in my humble experience. They had the same goals. They had the same narrative. They were arrogant, um, which I mean, you can find arrogant people everywhere. Right? But it was just, it was just an experience where I'm like, I don't want to be. Working with you. I don't want to be working in an environment where this kind of behavior doesn't get somewhat weeded out. Um, where as soon as you're recruiting, like, so this is the thing I've recruited myself, so I know what recruitment looks like. I've done it in academia, I've done it in the financial services, where when you're talking to people, you're not you don't present yourself as arrogant. You present yourself as it's lovely to get to, to get to know you. Let's see if you're a good fit for this industry, for this team specifically. Tell me about your past. Tell me about what you're hoping to get out of this role. You know, on top of obviously the, the, the skills question and the knowledge questions and what what have you, of course, standard of stuff, not here. So I thought it was just so strange that through and I've had these interviews with like seven different consultancies, and it was the
1: same vibe each time,
0: each time. And the and it was just like, "What is this?" And the irony is, you know, pat on the back for myself. I got through these interviews. They were like, oh, "Let's do the next round," and I'm like, "Let's not." <laughs> Let Let's not. Oh yeah, well. <laughs> I was just, yeah, it was just so disillusioning. I was just like, "Oh, this is, this is not yeah, it." Yeah, because they they have
1: this aura, right? These <laughs> these names, you see them, and you have this expectation. Yeah. And then you were, you're were kind of yeah, disillusioned with the reality of what was what your who your colleagues were going to be and what was apparently being valued which was not aligned with your values
0: no not remotely so
1: what was the next step from that
0: the next step was uh, so this by this stage keep in mind i started the masters in early october by this stage is is end of november start of december so this is a this is a, a very quick very rapid journey of me just consistently taking the train down to London, doing these interviews, hating all of it, whatever, then coming back up to, to Warwick uh, and continuing my studies, hanging out with friends. You know, This is my first year in the UK. It's my first year like living abroad. And it's just it is a rush of an experience. So what happened is I sat down with my course mentor and I was like, what am I supposed to do? He was not particularly helpful. He was not a particularly great person to begin with. It happens. Um, it happens. Yeah, not not everyone who's a good academic is is a good people manager. That's I think that's something the average academic, especially junior academics, have realised very quickly by this stage. <laughs> um, so he wasn't much help. So I actually went to have a, a chat with the person who was teaching me R. Uh, because that was not my best uh, course whatsoever, which is highly ironic because in my in my PhD and in my current job, I actually do quite a surprising amount of R. I finally gotten somewhat decent at it after years and years of struggling. But uh, so I sat down with him and I was like, I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life. You seem to have your stuff in order. Little did I know because he later became my PhD supervisor and then the curtain really drops. <laughs> but it was... Um, yeah, he just had a chat with me. He's like, what, what is it that you want to do? And I was like, I just want to understand why people are not so great at managing their money and how to make them better. Very simple, very straightforward. And he was like, well, that sounds like research. Come do a PhD then. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. I can do <laughs> just little to no conscious fault behind this decision <laughs> applied within two weeks from the conversation with him as my main supervisor, another one of my teachers as another supervisor, apply at other institutions as well, just for some risk diversification. And by early January, um, no, mid January, that's more realistic, given the Christmas break, I knew I had a PhD placement. My supervisors were locked in and two sources of funding were locked in. And by that stage, I still had till August to actually finish my master's so talk about rushing through yeah it.
1: oh my okay yeah that's hectic i yeah no i can't even imagine that but it, it seems like the, the the your your teacher that told you yeah you're probably gonna go to the uk he knew what he was talking about so yeah the, the, for sure the, uh, the eye of the storm was there and you were in the middle of it
0: yes but that's no, very, very very well put i think i i have nothing bad to say about uh, turn decker who was the the teacher at UCM. I think at the time he was also the temporary dean. The philosopher should never be in charge of any type of organization. It's uh, I love them to bit, but that that's not for them.
1: <laughs> but now, but it's, it's interesting because clearly he was instrumental in your in your decision, so it, it worked out for you. But now I have a question: Was it easy for you? And this is a question that I'm asking you because I anytime someone talks about a mentor, someone who I know in one conversation kind of changed the course of their lives in a, in a certain domain. Uh and and because I if I'd love to find like the, the, the magic formula for mentorship and it, it seems <laughs> to not exist. There's a part of luck in it. But here it also it seems a part of just be brave to approach him and ask him for help. What well, how you know what was the the process? How did you decide, you know what, I'm gonna talk with him and ask this and ask this important question.
0: Uh, well, I mean, to, if, if, if I only have options between two factors, this, this is this is pure luck. Um, this has very little to do with me as a person. So at the time, as I said, so turn, So my faculty, UCM, has three, three years. So it's just like your first year, second and then your final, which is the third year. Uh, there might have been some fourth years there, but that was not a formalized year um it was a multidisciplinary education. You could take education from other faculties. But as a result, the professors that were exclusively associated with my faculty, so UCM, were a whole bunch of different people. So Tone was one of the main philosophers. There were other professors there. There was a core psychologist. There was a core person for doing philosophy of science uh, and more of like the hardcore sciences, like the the beta courses, as we call it in Dutch, because it, like the hard sciences. And there were a couple people like this, um, throughout. So I think every discipline was represented and turn represented philosophy. Now, the thing with Tony is, was that he was an incredibly social person and somehow, and do not ask me how he knew everyone's name. So out of the 400 students in that building that were consistently affiliated with UCM, he knew all of them and he knew what they studied. Okay. That's amazing. So he approached you. Like when he saw you in like the common areas, he was like, Oh, I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? How is this course going? Are you enjoying it as much as you thought you would?
1: <laughs> That's amazing. That's a and superpower. Saying,
0: <laughs> that is, so that is a superpower. So obviously if you if you then look back to me saying, like, well, yeah, I'm really enjoying these courses in neuroeconomics, economic psychology, uh, complex cognition, like this type of stuff, but I don't really know what to do with it. That is one sentence for me to say to someone who has already approached me. And then he's the kind of person who would say, oh, in that case, if you have some time, I will be in my office from 12 to 3. Why don't you drop by? We'll have a chat. That was the kind of person he was. It has very little to do with me.
1: No, well, but still, it's a good story. And I, I, I love that, that you shared it in a little bit more detail. Um, but, yeah, some people have, have superpowers <laughs> like these. Uh, and he clearly, he cared a lot about uh, each student. And, uh, and that's quite amazing.
0: Absolutely. Quite amazing absolutely if he told me uh, that like hey i'll be uh in, in sydney in sydney australia for a week i'll be like oh, i will move my entire calendar just to fit in a lunch or dinner with you no questions asked he's a great person absolutely well
1: uh and and you you and your colleagues were very lucky to have someone like that in because a lot of people go through uh, know, academia grad school without being able to say oh i had a mentor i had someone who made a difference and uh, that's why i Whenever someone shares a little tidbit of a story like that, I want to dig in a little bit more to see if in in I don't know in five ten years I can I can say I have a <laughs> I have the
0: secret. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think you're gonna struggle with that one. I think so because of the because of the book because of the blog because of, of how vocal I've been about my PhD experience. I actually have a lot of people reaching out to me as well about. How do I optimize my PhD journey? Should I be doing a PhD? How did you manage, et cetera, et cetera? I'm sure you the have many of those yourselves. <laughs> the hard questions, yeah. Because I, I myself have been looking for a formula, especially as, um, you know, to give you a proper peek behind the scenes, the, the professor I mentioned, so his name was Neil. You can look up that he was my supervisor, so I'm not that worried about mentioning his name. But it turned out very quickly that we were not a particular good fit. And the second teacher I put on as my PhD supervisor, so Andrea, also not a good fit. Um, as a result, it happens. I I mean, in, in hindsight, I, and this is also something that I keep hammering on every single time I speak to someone, I keep hammering on it in my book. You need to make a very conscious decision about doing a PhD and about the people that you tack on as your supervisors. And most probably you will need to look for other collaborators during your PhD to get the most out of that experience, as well as look for a mentor, look for someone to support you. Because realistically, your PhD supervisor will struggle as as a person, as anyone would struggle, to be your supervisor, like from an administrative organizational perspective, as well as your collaborator on intellectual perspective, as well as a, as a mentor and someone who's gone like almost as HR, who's going to help you grow as a person. You're now asking a person who has a full-time job <laughs> with probably other supervisees to play three different roles to you. And in hindsight, when you spell it out like that, that doesn't sound like it would be particularly feasible. And that is one of my core misconceptions about the the phd process that, it, that a supervisor could do all of these things well they cannot i have never literally never seen this done well across all three buckets i just haven't i just and, haven't and
1: actually so looking at the the definition that i you know that i've kind of uh, that has gelled for me f- for what's a mentor one first point is someone who has no vested interests in the results of your research, so that that excludes your PI right away.
0: <laughs> Immediately out the window, goodbye.
1: <laughs> so yeah, so this takes us to you know you said that when when you went to the let's say PhD level, then the curtain dropped. Can you can you give us a little? You just mentioned something here about uh, the the you know the 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 match between you and your supervisors, which is also it's always a gamble because just interviewing doesn't it's not the same as living a year doing research with the person but you can try to put to stack the the you know to stack the the chips on on your side but it's it's easy to to uh to be surprised afterwards but what other things surprised you once the curtain dropped so you were coming, you know, you were coming through that path. Masters, oh, you have this interesting subject. You know what? Let's do a PhD. Let's let's go. And then what what were, were other uh surprises and, and moments of uh of uh yeah dis dis disenchantment or disillusionment that you've had?
0: Uh I think two things really stand out to me. And I've had them with both of my supervisors at separate times. Um so one of so during the, the teaching that they did, and obviously teaching a class is not the same as consistently supervising a student. It just isn't, or a PhD candidate, I think as they're often referred to in the in the US area. Um it's it's just absolutely not the same thing. So as teachers, they were incredibly conscientious, incredibly prepared, never late, great eye to detail, very supportive, did not mind if they had to explain something three times and the class was being held back by a single student. In that case, they were model teachers. You couldn't beat it if you tried, but that's something you can prep and practice. And it comes through practice and experience, which they had plenty. Supervision is a very different ball game where my supervisors, both of their working styles were different from mine and from each other. So in some of these meetings, you have three people because they always wanted to meet at the same time. That can work out well, that can work out not so well. I'm afraid I got stuck with the latter. Um, where you're trying to gel people whose backgrounds, whose experience and whose working style is very different. So this is quite unique to the behavioral sciences. But my the, the background of your supervisors need not be the same. Because at their age, because they were both uh, at the time, early 40s, now mid 40s, they couldn't have possibly done an education in behavioral science because it wasn't a formalized field. So people who are now in behavioral science that are above the age of 35, they would have had a background trained completely as an economist, completely trained as a psychologist. We've got a couple data scientists. We've got a couple of engineers, like a couple of like more miscellaneous type things. But predominantly, you're either a psychologist or predominantly, you are either an, uh, an economist. That is a very different training and a very different background. Doesn't always work well together, the methods and the assumptions are very, very different, so that was hurdle one <laughs> just trying to have them collaborate in in that kind of way, but the way they approached people was also very different. so Neil was English, England doesn't have that much of a hierarchy. Andrea was Italian, very hierarchical culture, so this didn't mesh either and then it turned out very quickly and and this just is what it is that both of them had had. Older male PhD candidates, you know, and on the Friday they go to the pub, they have a good chat, they have a bit of banter. They've been to each other's houses, and that's a very different relationship from the ones that that both of them had with their younger female PhD candidates. Which me and a direct colleague of mine, because we shared Neil as a supervisor, experienced very very quickly, where we don't get invited to these things. Not not that we want our supervisor sitting on our couch to begin with. But you know you're ten zero behind because you're not the right age and you're not the right gender. So that experience, you know, was we always knew it was going to be different for us. Is is what it is. Like I'm, like I have nothing really. I don't have the energy to even go into that kind of discussion, to be quite frank. But we we knew that, and then as the the year started progressing. Especially Neil became very busy. So Neil is a type of academic. He has a background in physics, then became a psychologist, is mainly interested in data science and has a lot of uh, external like corporate collaborations going on, which is great because it means you get a lot of data, um, which for us was very, very convenient. We didn't have to. We, I did run experiments so that most of my colleagues, so that's the grant writing. please give me funding, the, the ethics type of application. But for the data that he brought in, most of that was taken care of in the background, and that is ideal. It's. It's also why I went into the financial services afterwards, because data is the easiest thing to unlock there. Um, of course, you know, with proper protections and GDPR and everything in place, <laughs> you know, it has to be mentioned. Um, but so, and it became quite clearly. Well, it became quite clear very, very quickly that this man was busy. But as a PhD student, if you want to meet your supervisor once a week, once every fortnight, like half an hour to an hour, and you are consistently triple booked. And now you're standing in front of his office door. Most of my PhD was pre the pandemic. So you actually met uh, IRL. You had to go to people's offices. Then you're just standing in front of this door. So I have a friend next to me and another academic next to me. And we're all looking at each other being like, so we're clearly triple booked. Which one of us has the most urgent problem? Because this had become so frequent that everyone knew that the chances of getting time with Neil one on one. Not that high if he double books you. And I've had meetings with him at like seven in the morning, seven in the evening just to make sure that And I mean, keep in mind that that wasn't that was not super common either because the man had his own life. He had children. (laughs) So like he's not going to stick around to like 8 p.m. because you need your stuff fixed. Right.
1: (laughs) So so. So, it, so it's, of course, that aspect clearly has, was pretty difficult <laughs> and complicated. Uh, uh may, and I, apparently from what I'm surmising, uh, the other, uh, PI w- was not so there was, it wasn't so much better.
0: Different, very different.
1: But we don't need to go to dig more into it. My, my point is, do you have no, now looking back, what could you have done differently when choosing labs, for example? to prevent this, this sort of misalignment yeah. or mismatch.
0: I should have done what I now recommend everyone to do, and that is that you don't immediately jump on the first person that offers you <laughs> a, uh, the, the opportunity to, to do a PhD with them, but what you need to do is to talk to their current and their actual PhD students, especially the students that have nothing to, to gain or lose from talking either well or very badly about them. Talk to them. What was their experience like? Would they recommend this kind of supervisor uh, if you know with your working style? And I think that's you know that's these are good questions to ask because someone can be an amazing person and an amazing academic, but a terrible match for someone who, especially in the early stages, wants a lot of hands-on help. Because a lot of another misconception, I guess, about the PhD is that either a lot of people think that this is essentially still an education it's not it's really not i mean in the us you still get like two years of training most programs you do not this is not an education this is a training program where you need to become an independent researcher very very quickly so that is if that's not your vibe maybe really revisit whether this is for you but then there's also just people who just need a lot of hands-on help up front to make the switch which is a perfectly valid thing but if you've got a phd supervisor who is super super hands-off, your growth is gonna get stunted during that period, and it's gonna just be trial and error. Well, a lot of the PhD is trial and error anyway, but this is gonna be a very severe change yeah.
1: and a lot of troubleshooting and spreading and stressing. Yeah, uh, yeah no, I totally agree with your recommendation, and and uh, and yeah, it's it's something that that you uh, that you recommend now, which, which which is something I think anyone in this space of helping people figure out their their PhD, it's one of the the recommendations that that you see a lot, which is visit, 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 interview, like interview, but not not the PI, like talk with past members, talk with if you can current members, but it sometimes it's harder to to even have have access to them. But uh, yeah, totally, totally, totally. So information and data, like you were saying, you know, if you have if you start with some data, it, it's uh, the chance that you take the right decision. Is is increased? So how? So so you forged on, even with these these conditions, <laughs> you forged on, and uh...
0: they only became. The first year was fine because we mainly write like like literature reviews and research proposals and grant proposals during the first year. That was fine. We have a couple courses in the UK system as well. It was fine. It was the second year that this became a mess, and then I had a a chat with one of them, I think, in February of my second year. And then it's my second supervisor who suddenly became a bit of a bully. He was like, you should feel thankful that we're even spending so much time on you. You don't have a right to be feel this frustrated. Um, normally, I don't even meet my PhD students so often. And I'm like, if you're telling me that you're meeting your PhD students even less often than this, you're telling me you're meeting them once a month. And then also haven't done any of the prep work because that's one of the other reasons that I got very frustrated. I came to them with very specific issues. And with one of them, he was like, the best thing to do. And I thought he initially meant it as a joke. He did not. The best thing for you to do is for every meeting to come in, reintroduce the topic of your PhD, tell me exactly which one of the projects we're working on, what the specific issue is, and I might remember what you're on about. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I mean, tell me that you don't give a damn. Without saying that you don't give a damn, like literally, I was like, "What is this?" Um, so I was like, "Okay, he, he, this is where we're at." It's
1: <laughs> so strange. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's just, just, just imagine that I'm amnesic each time that you meet me, and that you need to to tell me all about you again. It's uh, anyway. Oh yeah. And so, how did how did you? Where did you find the either the community? the 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 you know people to commiserate, How did you find the energy to to trudge on and finish?
0: Uh, so i I'm a bit of a mule, um, and I'm not entirely sure if that translates well to English, but like once I, I put my mind to something, I, I, I will finish it, I will get it done. Not out of motivation, not out of out of excitement, just out of sheer stubbornness. <laughs> I don't care how it's done. I will claw my way through it. Yeah, exactly. So this this is the thing. I think um, uh, this is a very common experience for a lot of PhD students. But the, the people that move into a PhD are perfectionists and high achievers. But they are that in different kinds of areas. So I know, and it was the same for me, where I always did incredibly well in education. Like, I guess, the American... Uh, Comparison would be like you know you're you're an A plus student throughout. Most of my PhD colleagues were, but the PhD is so different from education that a lot of that skill set just doesn't really hold. Um, It really doesn't. So now there's a whole bunch of people who are like, well, I used to be you know really great at everything, and now I'm not sure. And then you look around, and some people, especially if they've got different uh, background experience, because I had a lot of people in the PhD who had like a decade of work experience. I came. I came straight out of education. I had no idea. Um, so yeah, they 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 were just much more independent to begin with. So a lot of this didn't phase them. It just didn't phase them. And I'm there crying in a corner, being like, I don't know what I'm doing. My supervisors don't want to talk to me. I don't know what to do next. Whereas obviously, I should have lo- looked for other collaborators. I should have talked to my own cohort better. I should have talked to the older cohorts better. I should have looked for a mentor. I should have there's a lot of i should haves in <laughs> in hindsight um but as i said you know by the skin of my teeth i just you know kept clawing through it kept clawing through it there's a there's a great community online i think on twitter if you dare go on twitter because it's not always the nicest platform there there's there's amazing academic uh communities there and you can you can find anyone to commiserate with you can find anyone to to share advice with you. like on, on Twitter, I even found the person who did most of the coding of my experimental design for one of my studies because I didn't, I didn't know how to code in Java and they did. And then they were like, oh, this sounds super familiar to what I've already did. Here's a link. Copy the whole lot. I, I opened the project up. Op- uh, I, I opened the project up to you. Feel free to just have it. I was like, okay. Twitter can't be that bad. No, no, it is.
1: It is a great community. There's a lot of negativity, of course. Negativity gets more clicks than than anything positive, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people trying to help, trying to share their stories, trying to uh, um, to 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 help by sharing. In any case, it is it is worth looking into and engaging with. I really like the way that you put on, you know, that you put on two extremes or in two different continents, education and the PhD, the way you say it, I really like it because it really tends to be kind of convoluted, especially, especially by people who are not in academia and say, oh, they're students. And actually that's, that's, that's another, that's another battle that I, I'm, you know, that I kind of saw uh, someone inspired me to hop on and getting people to call them to call graduate students graduate researchers and uh, and i think uh, because a lot of people think how oh, students they're oh, so it means they're at school it means they're not working no it's work it's hard work and it's not it's not education it's it's training for something later uh and th- where i'm going with this is it's really unfair that uh you get to a point where you feel like you said you're in the corner crying and saying I'm kind of lost because I don't have a good relationship with my PIs. I'm not being coached. I'm not being mentored. And the, at, at no point in this, three, because in the UK, it's three years, right?
0: Um, mine was four. but So it's three years if you get no courses. Oh, it's a, it's a massive it, chunk of your life. That
1: at no point in that chunk of your life is there a preparation for, hey, look, here's what a PhD is. And also, here's what it isn't. And so here, get ready and be ready for this, be ready for that. But I guess that's kind of the hole you're trying to fill with your book.
0: Absolutely. I've, <laughs> it's it's such a good point. This is what the PhD isn't because I have seen, and this again depends on whether your PI is a decent person or not. And no offense to academia, I'm sure it has a, a hit rate of just as, as high as all the other industries, but the chance of, working under someone or having a PI who is um, someone with a big ego who absolutely doesn't care about your growth and and your work, unless it's to their greater glory, you can end up with these people. Um, And I've put an entire chapter in the book where it's just like, you need to look out for certain types of red flags. One of them being, you are not a research assistant to your supervisor because you see that all the time. Like, you are supposed to be an independent researcher. Sure, you might be a trainee or, like, a graduate researcher, which I think is a, is a great way to, to call PhDs. Um, but it should be your work, as in your name is the first in the author list, unless the author list is alphabetic and your name starts with a Z. I mean, sorry about that, but it is what it is. Maybe change your name. Um but it's, you know, it is, this should be your work. It should be very clearly your idea, your conceptualization, and not your supervisor consistently trying to derail what is going on here. So it fits whatever it is they are currently researching or what, whatever they're into. And especially not it's vaguely their idea, but you're the one executing everything and doing all the groundwork and mm-hmm. written out the paper. And now they're taking that editing, if at all, and then putting their name first. That is not what this is. And that seems to surprise. And I mean, obviously, if you spell it out like this, you know, we're having this conversation nice and calm for you. I'm pretty sure it's late afternoon. For me, it's bright and early in the morning. And if you spell this conversation out, then you're kind of thinking to yourself, especially in hindsight, well, duh, of course, that's not what it is. But if you're in the thick of it and you've been with the supervisor for years and years on end, which. The psychological wear down of that is very real. Like, you can turn really capable people into ghosts, shells, or shadows of themselves, whatever the English saying is, very, very quickly. That, this, that bad management can do that in less than a couple months. Honestly, it's not hard. As a psychologist, I can tell you this this is not hard to do. Um, the, the average army is also very good at this. Um, yeah because a... there's this
1: unchecked <laughs> there's this unchecked asymmetry of power uh every day and it's unchecked so it, things can go bad from day one and very bad and and then you end up with people leaving or either leaving because they have mental health issues or just leaving because they feel that the, they were uh, you know they were mistreated or whatever um and and yeah that being said sometimes it's time to leave and you just need to leave. Actually, the, the one of the latest episodes that I published with Stephanie Fuccio was about her decision to leave and why and why she didn't have it was health related, but also culture, uh, the culture of the university related. Um, but uh, from the point of view of um, a behavioral economist or, or, you know, like you, is it logical today and i'm gonna ask it like this this is kind of a a devil's advocate type of question but should you know it does it make sense for people to go into phds today
0: it's it's a question i am being asked multiple times every week and my answer is completely none my answer is not super consistent to it because i find it a very difficult question to answer without context yeah. Um, and, and I'm not so expecting a yes
1: or no. I want to do that. No, no, no,
0: God, no. <laughs> you're, you're not getting one. Uh, I mean, in your case, you already have a PhD. I wouldn't recommend you do another one unless you're super keen for some for reason. Some but no. <laughs> I know people who have, who've got two PhDs. It's very, they are also an academic, so that might help a bit. So obviously, if you want to get into academia and you want to do it purely the academic route, you don't have much of a choice. Obviously, I know people who became... Titans in industry and then slowly edged their way into academia or people who went into industry but always were on the research side as a result they were still able to publish or they always had academic collaborations on the side or that was an integral part of their job. That's a way to stay in touch with academia. I currently do that myself. So I still have academic contacts. my job is predominantly research focused. For me, it works really really well. I think is great. I wouldn't consider going back into academia anytime soon. But as a result, you have like a toe still in academia, but the rest of your body is very much an industry. If you want to be at least half your body into academia, I'm afraid that PhD is not something you're going to be able to escape, especially if you want to do the journey through and through, which I'm pretty sure nowadays, because of the cost of living crisis that we're in, a lot of people aren't considering. I think a lot of people from what I can gather are thinking like, I'm going to finish my undergrad or my masters, get a job work through that work up to a certain level where i've got a proper emergency buffer i've met a couple of financial goals and maybe i'll consider getting back into academia because doing a phd from an industry job that's just an application process and getting to know a bunch of academics i think in hindsight maybe not that difficult and if you've got a research job getting back into a postdoc is also not that difficult that's a scare tactic used by academic you bunch you leave you can never get back yes you can <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's just it's just more effort, but like you can argue that staying the full academic trajectory and not getting anywhere financially for five to ten years is also a lot of effort. (laughs) So I mean, you can argue it that way. So, but then if you if you are hell bent on having an industry career, it is very field specific. It's even very topic specific on whether you need a PhD in the behavioral sciences if you want to be a purely behavioral scientist like just a pure applied behavioral scientist, you don't really want to deal with academics, um, and you've got a good research, like methods type training. I don't necessarily see the value of a PhD. Um, there are, there are people um the, the issue is with a lot of research companies in my field, because it's become very, very competitive very, very quickly because it's now finally been formalized. What you're seeing is that the PhD is used as a way to compete. So. If you have the choice between hiring someone with a master's and someone with a PhD, the PhD will get hired, especially in research driven positions. But that is something I see predominantly in the UK and in Australia. This is not something that would necessarily translate over to say the rest of Europe. And I'm not too sure about the States, if I'm being very honest, Canada has the same thing. Canada prefers people like behavioral scientists with a PhD compared to someone with just a master's degree. But if you have someone with a master's degree plus five years of work experience, and someone with a PhD without work experience, that's a bit of a toss-up, and I wouldn't actually be able to tell you which one was going to yeah, win.
1: It's going to be uh, in the interview. That's a very interesting and nuanced answer, uh, Merla. I'm super happy. I'm super happy that you brought it like this because it does show that it's a case by case thing. And uh, and one thing that I wish, because here in Canada, PhDs tend to be six years, even seven, and you know, I would try to say go 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 get your PhD in a country where it's three to four years. Because
0: Unless you wanna get back into academia in the States and then you're aft.
1: <laughs> well, if you come with a good PhD from the UK, uh, uh, I think you you know you should you should be good. Though well, and you need to do some postdocs. You need to do a yeah, little yeah. string of postdocs yeah. after for sure. But my, my point is that the 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 tenure game we all know now it's known the 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 numbers are out it's twenty to fifteen percent of people who get into a PhD that have maybe have a spot in tenure so it's it's the number the odds are really not good um, no they're terrible. <laughs> they're terrible but there are domains like you said where today because of how things are evolving actually a PhD is an argument it's an argument for you. Uh, it's it's uh, another point on your on your on your card to say, look, I'm better than the next than than the next one. Uh, it's you know it, it's kind of comical in a way, but it's if it's happening, it, it, we need to share it. And I'm happy that you mentioned it.
0: It's very field specific. So my my best friend, who's a, a cognitive neuroscientist, is also doing her PhD because even if you want to do that in industry, you need. Years and years of experience with a neuroscientific method, such as fMRI, okay. EEG, oh, t- wow. t- TMS, to, su- to some extent. So, and you need all of this mix, and you need to prove that you can actually do research. But they won't hire you with just a master. So you don't really have a. It's a rock and a hard place, and in the middle you have a PhD. <laughs> so, like for some fields, this is very very specific. um A lot of the clinical sciences are the same. You need to have a PhD, but it, so it, so if, if someone's listening at night right now and they're like, I, I don't know what this looks like for my field, look at people who are in your field, say about five years ahead of you, not more than ten years ahead, because that information might already be outdated because some fields move very fast, whereas the academic counterpart doesn't. So I have these conversations with these people and ask, do you think I need a PhD? What was your motivation for doing one? And try to find someone in that field who hasn't done a PhD, because you always need the the counterfactual, right? And see like, hey, I see you are one of the few, potentially, people who don't have a PhD in this field. How did that work out for you? And then for some people, you'll realize that they have a very unique journey, which is not likely to replicate. Mm
1: -hmm. They might have had some luck or different different, connections. Yeah, Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. or they're just brilliant. It happens. well yeah they
1: they have a string of of accomplishments that just are shine uh, you know as much as anything on their c v and uh, bring them there that's a super super important point and and I think if you're listening to, and if you just missed what Merle said in the last minute uh it's it's really really important. look for people who are five years ahead and uh and yeah ask them even ask them do i you know do I need one now or uh, you know, ask ask them the, the the question that might feel a little bit too blunt, but ask them. They they'll if they are um, well connected in in whichever space you're looking to go into, uh, they'll they'll give you answers that you'll, you can start accruing. And you have just, not just one conversation; you need to have a bunch of them, and then you you, you, oh, yeah, you create a map, <laughs> and then you'll know what to decide.
0: Yeah, and don't ask the same type of person over and over again. Look for someone with a PhD, look for someone without a PhD, look for someone with a PhD in a field which is seemingly unrelated. Look for someone who did a PhD at like 40 and for someone who did one at 20. And, you know, it, it all regresses to the mean, but you need to figure out what that mean is.
1: No, no, it's uh, it's super, super important. And one of the dangers of for me, at, at least, you know, when I was doing my PhD, I was, I was in total tunnel vision and uh it's it's uh, it's a bad uh it's a bad way a bad path to take because you don't have these conversations you you're not enriching your network you're not learning what's happening in the job market what you know what new you were saying that you know t- data 10 years old might be outdated this means that new jobs new new endeavors new indus- industrial or innovation endeavors are happening now so maybe even if you're talking with the person five years ahead of you, they also won't be able to give you the info because when you get when you hit the job market, there's going to be new stuff out there. But don't yeah, don't fall into the error of tunnel vision and of going it alone all the way no, because God, you no. need people. You need uh, people to mentor you, champion you if possible, if you're lucky. Uh, but also share information with you, and 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 that's uh, that's by by. Yeah, nurturing connections. Um and it could be on LinkedIn. It's it's not even so complicated today.
0: No, no, they they don't have to be next to you. They don't have to be in the same department, university, sometimes not even in the same field. Like the as I said, one of my core uh, core pivoters or like one of the people who made me pivot was a philosopher. Like I don't do anything with philosophy, but you know, they they happen to be around. But LinkedIn, Twitter they, there will be people who are very open to, to having these conversations, to sharing this type of information, to talk about their own experience, make some recommendations. Caveat that obviously their recommendation is grounded in their own experience. It's quite, quite quite an important caveat. Um, That's why it's
1: important to, talk, but to they, have a universe of people you're talking yeah. to, not just two or three.
0: <laughs> yes. Honestly, you know, it, it, the, the saying it takes a village, nah, this takes a country. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It really does. It can get as many perspectives as you can always. Um, and if, if you have a couple of people who are telling you things that are radically different from everything that you've heard before, just make sure that you question why certain people are telling you certain things. Some people can have had severely bad experiences and are just venting. That's not necessarily something that you can do much with as an individual but the people that you have initially talked to, they might've painted a picture, Like especially if they're still very close to, say the PI or the department or the field, they might've painted a picture where they were very careful to make sure that nothing they mentioned could lead to any form of retaliation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, if you are consistently faced with people who don't want to tell you the truth or tell you very simple and basic platitudes about uh, a PI, for example, that's the most like sensitive one, so let's stick with that one, you might have found yourself a very very clear red flag so either it's a cultural thing where people just don't talk that openly about their negative experiences to someone they've recently met that's entirely feasible i leave that to you uh, to decide what's going on but it could also be that you have just met a whole bunch of people who still work very closely with a specific pi who know for a fact that if they say anything negative there will be retaliation and you cannot find yourself a bigger red flag than yeah, that.
1: Politics. Oh, yeah, politics. Yeah. I, no, it's true. Merla, I just noticed that we're almost at an hour of talking, and it doesn't, it doesn't somehow feel like it.
0: <laughs> I, I had a great time. I can keep going, but I have a feeling you might have other things to do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, be, but before, before uh, uh, maybe having a last little stretch of uh, you know of, of talking and and maybe sharing something with. the the audience i did mention a couple of times your book your book is called the ultimate guide to doing a phd uh people can find it on amazon is there is there a preferred way for you to to um for people to go find the book
0: no i mean obviously amazon will will sell it uh i think what was the name of the publisher again this this shows you how much i'm tuned into what i'm doing uh i think if you want to buy it from the publisher's website which is world scientific yeah, you, you absolutely can. They might have a discount dangling around. I, I can look it up. I, I might have one. But uh, don't just you can find this anywhere, really. But Amazon is probably your best bet. Amazon delivers worldwide. Yeah, no, you should that's, be right. <laughs>
1: and now tell us a little bit about um, your uh, your work on the blog on um, money. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm missing. Uh, it's moneyonthemind.org. What's, what's that about? What's, what are you doing there?
0: So most of my decisions in life have been made out of sheer frustration, which is a terrible motivator for any decision. Um, But as I said, because I'm stubborn, I do end up sticking with it. So then after a while, you have a block that's been going for five years. So I realized in the first year of the Ph.D. that um, I it took me I, I another misconception about the Ph.D. and I've had so many, I thought there would be a lot of writing Like a lot of great writing, idea dissemination, no. What it is, is a lot of rewriting and editing and dissemination might happen eventually if someone deems you valid enough or legitimate enough to to publish. God help us all. But um, so what I had hoped for wasn't manifesting. So I specifically specialize in the interaction between uh, behavioral science and consumer finance, so money on the mind, not that far fetched. And I initially started writing about that intersection where I wanted to just make sure that people could take from a very publicly available source insights in that interaction, in that intersection between these two fields. Like, why do people fail to budget? Why do we have buyers regret, or not always, but like, why do you experience that so much? How is a credit card tripping us up? So very applied, very bite sized. This is what the theory says. This is what it practically looks like, and this is what you can do about it. And as I did that for a while, I started to realize that maybe I can just add in a small, small category there, which is just me venting about the PhD, explaining academia to people. And as I was doing that, it's, it's actually a very popular sub series uh, on, on the blog. So I thought, especially as I had more and more people reach out to me, uh, I've told you this before, I've had years during the PhD where I had this chat with like two to three people every week, which is terrible economies of scale. <laughs> <laughs> so especially during the pandemic, I had lots and lots of calls. I love these calls. I I am a psychologist still, so like I love talking to people try to help them figure out what's going on, how they can progress uh, to whatever goal it is that they want to reach. But it's, like I said, terrible economies of scale. So I thought, how about I turn parts of the blog and parts of the conversations that I've had into a book so it's this tangible thing, easy to figure out what's going on, read it, and you'll probably have an answer to at least 99% of your questions. So that's, that's, that's the way that flows from there. But the, so that's now been turned into a book and I'll probably turn the other aspects of my blog. So the interview series with like prominent behavioral scientists, I'll reach 200 interviews this year. It's huge. Yeah, I know. You know, we just, like I said, tenacity, we keep going. Yeah. <laughs> I'll probably turn that into a book. I've really, really enjoyed that aspect of the blog. And I don't know years years down the line, once, once some more research has been done in, in my field, I'll probably turn all the articles on how to, to manage money, behaviorally informed, I'll turn it into a book as well. Because I just love writing. I just love That's writing. It's awesome.
1: That's awesome. And people people need that type of... There, there's going to be a public for that, I'm sure.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm not worried.
1: <laughs> Merle, this is... And the last thing, if people want to reach out to you, where's the best platform to say, Hi, Merle, I really liked uh, what you shared on on uh, Beyond the Thesis. I'd like to ask some questions. Where do they, Where do people find you?
0: Uh, I always recommend people to go to my Twitter, but somehow my most popular platform via landslide is LinkedIn. So just type my name, which is pretty unique, <laughs> into LinkedIn, and you can't really miss me. Just drop me a message, drop me a question. I'd be super happy to help. Perfect.
1: If you're on Twitter, it's MoneyMindMerle, and uh, I'll share it in the show notes. Merle, do you have a, a last, uh, last word of inspiration uh, for someone who is, Maybe going through kind of the some, some of the emotions and ex- experiences you were going through in the PhD. They're like last year, you know, trying to, to tough it, you know, to to uh you know forge through and finish. Um do you, as a psychologist. <laughs> as a psychologist, all right. Uh,
0: no, that's it's 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 a fair point. It's a fair point. Like so it's for advice for people who have been strong, some inspiration. Um don't try to do this alone, and I mean it in every sense of the word. Just, just don't. If you have, if you are experiencing a lot of negative emotions, talk about them. If you are experiencing very, very negative experience consistently with your supervisors, alert someone to it. Talk to people about it. Get a plan how to deal with it. And if it's really, really getting bad from like a mental or physical health perspective, you can pause a PhD. Because the best thing that you can do is to A very opposite to clearly what David and I have done, do not get stuck in tunnel vision, take a break and get perspective, get distance, and then figure out whether whether what you're looking at is still a picture that you want to be looking at for the next however many years you've got left. There's nothing wrong with quitting a PhD. There's nothing wrong with pausing a PhD. There's nothing wrong with switching supervisors. I have seen it done before. It's not the easiest process, but it can most definitely be done. But at the end of the day this is just a way for you to get to the next milestone in your life and that should not come at the expense of your physical or mental health there are other ways of doing this just don't be blind to those alternatives and don't do it alone
1: <laughs> awesome well merla i there's no way i can add this is perfect what you just said now it's a great way to end the episode and and uh, you know it's a little nugget of, of a lot of important messages that i try to i I try to promote whenever i can but you've delivered them beautifully i'm gonna leave it at that thank you so much thank you so much for having reached out uh thanks for having chatted with me told me your story and thanks for this hour that we've spent here uh demystifying some misconceptions but also talking about your experience and and what you've learned so far so Thank you and, and all, best of luck with all your projects and with the book uh, and the books. <laughs> the, the many, books. many books. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, thank you so <laughs> thank much. You. This was great.
0: Thanks for having me on, David. Absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening to another Beyond the Thesis conversation with me, David Mendes, and my guest, Merle van den Acker. If you found any value in this conversation, please share it with someone like you and help Beyond the Thesis reach as many years as possible. And if you want to help a little bit more, please go to papaphd.com forward slash audience and fill in the survey that is there for you and leave a comment so I can give you a shout out in a future episode. Thank you for being a fan. Happy listening and happy sharing.